I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Today's episode has been sponsored by Pediatrician in Your Pocket at dr-gen.com. Dr. Jennifer Trachtenberg is a mother of three and a 20-plus year pediatrician, board certified, who has called all of her amazing advice and made a series of five-minute videos on everything from feeding and sleeping to safety and all types of parenting issues, which basically every parent out there can use, especially in the middle of the night when you can't reach your pediatrician. So this is like a must do. And she's offering a discount to everyone with code PIP20. PIP20 20 is the code to get 20% off of all of her modules. So definitely go to dr-gen.com and check it out. It's also on a link in my website too, zibbyowens.com. Today, I FaceTimed with Suzanne Morrison, who's the author of Yoga Bitch, which was an IndieBound bestseller, a cross-cut best Northwest book of 2011, and has been translated into seven languages. Yoga Bitch had its start as a long-running one-woman show of the same title, which played in New York, London, and across the United States. A recipient of four culture and artist trust grants, her fiction and essays have appeared in American Short Fiction, Pop Shot UK, Salt Hill, Washington Square, the Chicago Tribune, and elsewhere. She teaches memoir and fiction at Seattle's Hugo House and at Veteran Centers through the Red Badge Program. So welcome, Suzanne. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks for having me. Of course. So can you please tell listeners what Yoga Bitch is about? Sure. So when I was in my mid-20s, shortly after graduating from college, I started doing yoga. I just sort of, I don't know, I just sort of popped into this yoga studio in Seattle, kind of on a whim. And there was this really extraordinary woman running the class. She was beautiful. She was smart. And she kind of had worked everything out in her life through yoga. This is what I came to learn the more time I spent in her yoga studio. And she ran the studio with her partner, Blue, and they were just these sort of spectacular human beings. And this was kind of like old school Seattle yoga. So kind of on the hippier end of the spectrum, not like the, you know, posh sort of more corporate power yoga styles that are prevalent today. This is a bit more woo-woo. But anyway, they taught these yoga teacher trainings that were like two and a half months in Bali every year. And on a total whim, I just decided to go. And I didn't know if I wanted to be a yoga teacher or not. I just knew I wanted to spend more time in the presence of this woman. Her name was Indra. And that's what I call her in the book. And I just kind of wanted to learn everything she knew because I felt like my life was a total mess at 25. <laughs> I didn't really know where, where I was going. I was about to move to New York when September 11th had just happened. So I was like, is that crazy? And I was in this relationship with a guy I really loved, but I wasn't sure that it was going to really, you know, go anywhere. And here was this woman who had figured everything out through yoga. And I was like, well, maybe that will work for me too. And so that's what I did. And the, the experience resulted in, in this book. Wouldn't it be nice to just be able to find something you love to do like yoga and then think that that makes you have everything in life figured out? <laughs> right. I know. Oh, I think that's the lure of a lot of spiritual practices. And that's what I mean when I say that this yoga practice was more old school because it was very much a spiritual practice. It was physical. We were doing asana as well as meditation and things like that, but it was without question a spiritual practice. And I think that that is why people convert to Christianity or Judaism or Islam or, or any number of religions because, or spiritual paths, because there is this idea that if you can find a way to sort of train yourself to see the world and to see yourself that you're going to then have better instincts and you'll be able to trust yourself more. And as, as a result, you'll make better decisions. And as a result of that, be happier. 
And I think for some people that might be true. It wasn't totally for me. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I like how you, I like how you say up front that you were reading all these spiritual memoirs, but then hiding that from everybody as if it was like a shameful activity. And yet here, like you're writing this book. I mean, it's like sort of the, I mean, not the antidote to a spiritual memoir, but like an offshoot of a spiritual memoir. Some would say it it is one, but. Yeah, it's kind of like an anti, it's not an anti-spiritual memoir. It's not, it's not, yeah, I I think it is a spiritual memoir. I mean, I think that the term is sometimes unfairly maligned. And perhaps I think that now because I've written one, (laughs) but yeah, I was super embarrassed to be reading them in my twenties, you know, and there were all sorts that were like, you know, uh, Buddhist memoirs and Christian memoirs and, and, you know, pretty much any religious experience, I read about it. And in Seattle, I mean, Seattle is this, like, really secular city. It, this is not a very religious place, especially in the city itself. If you get around to the outskirts, it, gets, it changes a lot. It's a really deeply skeptical city, pretty atheist is how I would really think of it. And so it seemed even cheesier, like really corny to be reading these books. And then to find myself writing one, after, you know, a few years later, I was like, wow, well, I've really tipped over uh, <laughs> to the other side here now. And I, th- I just think it was so great that you actually went on one of those retreats because I feel like I hear about the, these things all the time. And I, you always wonder, mm-hmm. like, what would that be like if I just picked up my life and tried it? And then that's what you did for, like, the rest of us. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, I, I've always loved to travel. I had never been to that part of the world. I was really deeply naive about it. I really didn't know what to expect from Indonesia. And, and Bali is so unique within Indonesia. You know, it's, it's, um, they practice Balinese Hinduism there, whereas Islam is the, the biggest religion in, in Indonesia otherwise. But I really had no idea where I was going. And I didn't do really any research either. I was just kind of in this like post-college like days, I think. But I will say, like having talked to people who've gone to other types of yoga retreats, I think this one was kind of unique. It was, I mean, it wasn't in the sense that we did a lot of yoga. We meditated. We did pranayama, which is the breathing exercises. We studied yogic history. But there was also, it was pretty hardcore. And we we did yoga like eight hours a day and did so much meditation. And then as you discover, like, you know, on page 30 of the book or something, a lot of these people were drinking their own urine. Am I allowed to say this on your podcast? Yes, you are definitely allowed to say that. And by the way, okay, I, I mentioned that to my kids. I was like, you're never going to believe what's going on in the book I'm reading right now. And they were like, what? Actually, I told them first when you were debating whether or not to do it, I was like, the girl. And so then they kept asking, like, did she do it? <laughs> <laughs> it's like the question I get from everybody. I'll never live it down. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that was sort of shocking. I was like, wow, these people are so hardcore. But I didn't realize just how hardcore they really were until I understood that they were doing that. And there's this whole like spiritual reason for doing it, according to them. And I've read a bunch of books about it. Like when I got home from Bali, I bought all these books. Um, I was like, what on earth were they doing? And yeah, there's, there are all sorts of theories, esoteric sort of theories about why that's good for you, both physically and spiritually. But that's just like how tipped over these people were into the woo, right? Like they were just doing things that were so outside the mainstream and certainly outside of like what we think of as yoga now. You know, like yoga is so mainstream these days. You were like poking so much fun, I feel like, at your roommate, Jessica. And then by the end, you had successfully sort of corrupted her back to the land of (laughs) cynicism and like, you know, I don't know, breaking the rules and all the rest of it. Yeah, we had a lot of fun. We were so different, like so completely different. 
And, you know, I was like a smoker and I, you know, liked to drink and eat meat. And she was very pure by comparison. And by the end, I think we were both, we both kind of rubbed off on each other in ways that I, I think were really good. And, you know, we've stayed friends, we've stayed in touch. I haven't really talked to her very much lately, but she, she actually hosted me when I was on book tour Aww. and they run my event. Yeah, she's, she's really a wonderful person and she runs her own yoga studio. She's really gotten involved in activism and things like that. She's really a, a great person, but we were so completely different. So it really could have, we could have just like really hated living together, but we ended up having a lot of fun. <laughs> and I feel like you tapped into the whole sort of forming your identity. And as an offshoot of that, like, am I dating the right person? Sort of agita that mm-hmm. plagues many in their twenties when you're trying to figure mm-hmm. out all the big answers in life. And I feel like you're doubting over and over, like sometimes when you were writing this diary within the book, everything was fine. And then the next day you were doubting it and then it was fine. And I was like, I've so mm-hmm. been there in that, like everyone has been in that moment and you captured it really well. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Being in your twenties is so hard. You know, I'm in my 40s now and, you know, every decade has its challenges, you know, but your 20s are so challenging. They're so hard. It's so hard not to know, like, how you want to live yet. Mm -hmm. You don't really know, you know, kind of what your daily rhythms are even Mm -hmm. and, and how important those things are going to be in terms of who you partner up with if you do partner up. And I think for me, and I think I put this in the book, that when I went to Bali, I was, I was just, my head was so, I was so confused about where I was going in my life. And so I made a vow to myself because what I had noticed was that when I wrote in my journal, I was lying to myself, like really hardcore, you know, like I'd be full of all this doubt about my relationship, but on the page, I would be like, things are great. I love my boyfriend so much. Things are hard, but hard is good. Challenging is good in a relationship. You know, I had all these like theories that I would sort of use, you know, which I think all young women do, probably a lot of young men as well. We were like, no, it's good if we don't get along all the time. He challenges me or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. And so I've made this vow that I was not going to lie in my journal. And it made a huge difference in my life. And I think that just that one decision to be honest in this one place, this journal of mine, you know, and I, I, I knew I, I was, I, I knew I wasn't going to burn it when I got home, but I told myself I could or that I could just leave it in Indonesia in some dumpster or something like that, so long as I was really honest. And I think that was a game changer for me, both in terms of learning about myself and my tendencies, but also I think it's what made me a writer. I mean, I've always been a writer, but I think this is the first time I was like, if I'm going to be a writer, I have to actually be willing to face what's true for me. So how long after you got home and you kept the journal, did you think to yourself, maybe I should try to publish this? (laughs) Well, the the book is definitely not my journal. My journal is a lot more boring. (laughs) Actually, when I got home, I moved to New York a few months later. And then originally I I didn't know that it was going to be a book. I mean, I think I thought it might be, but I knew for sure I wanted it to be a one woman show because my, my background was in the theater. And so I was moving to New York to like pursue solo performance, mostly. I didn't really want to be a traditional actress, you know, and basically just play a bunch of girlfriends and wives and mothers. I wanted to tell my own stories. I wanted to write and and produce and perform my own shows. And here, all of a sudden, I had this story of this, like, crazy yoga retreat and all of this, like, inner turmoil. And so that's what I did in New York. I, I spent a few years putting the show together and then performing it in New York. And then I moved back to Seattle. And by the time the show was up on its feet, I knew I needed to write it as a book because what I found was that, you know, 
theatrical writing, like writing for the stage and writing for the page are really, really different in terms of the sorts of things you can do. And because it, it had all this like spiritual stuff in it that I wanted to explore that really didn't perform well on stage to really get into the, the complexity and the sort of inner contradictions of a spiritual path or an attempt at faith that it just really didn't work on stage. Like all of those things got cut from the show, but they were in many ways, the things that were most important to me. And so I started writing it as a book and then that took me years and years. And I, I originally it was, I wanted it to be like a comic novel and it really didn't work very well, mostly because I was trying to improve the main character so much like me I was trying to make her like really like way smarter and like cooler and she had like an amazing rack I remember like, I remember like a total like body and so she just wasn't vulnerable enough and so my agent at the time sent it out as a novel to a bunch of publishers it was roundly rejected and then one of the editors was like, this really should be a memoir. Like, it's obviously a true story. Why doesn't she just write it as a memoir? And at the time, memoir was like having this huge boom in publishing. And I was like, absolutely not. I'm definitely not going to do that. I've written it as a show. I've written it as a novel. Like, how many more ways am I going to write this story? And so I kind of sat on it for a year. And then I woke up in the middle of the night and I had this epiphany. And I was like, oh, I should write the memoir as like diary entries from where I have like no perspective. So like you're thrust right into the middle of the experience in Bali and then intersperse that with perspective from today. Like, I don't know, eight years later, five years later, I can't remember what it is now. But once I had that realization that that could work, then the memoir, I won't say it wrote itself because it definitely didn't, but then it, it, it happened, I guess. Awesome. And then what happened? Did you send it to the same publisher who said that or did you end up with a different one? We ended up with a different one. It was Random House, and I had a really great experience there. I loved my editor, an amazing team there, and they took really good care of it. So I, in the end, I was really, really happy with how everything worked out. That's great. And now you're doing a new yeah. memoir. Is that true? I read that somewhere, but maybe it's not um, no, true. No, actually, I have. I actually have a couple books in the in process right now. I have one that's all but finished. I just need to kind of tweak some things, and that's it's basically autobiographical fiction. And it's called Thinking Like a Girl. And it's a coming-of-age story, sort of an intellectual and sexual coming-of-age story about how, like, what I was drawing from was sort of my pretentious youth. Because I I went off to Europe after high school. There was no money for the kind of college I wanted to go to. So I just raised my own money and took myself to Europe to, like, do theater and be a writer. And it was super pretentious. And I really wanted to explore that, like, the, the girl who does the thing that, like, Boys have historically done, um, boy artists, I mean, of um, taking herself way too seriously and having all sorts of artistic feelings all over the place. And sort of how, you know, it's another, this one also deals with sort of young love in terms of, I think a lot of young women who aspire to be artists think that they need to have a partner who matches that in some way like maybe it's a hugely dramatic love story and that's what this one was and what I what I write in the book is this this love story that is you know totally terrible like the worst but because it's so dramatic it feels very artistic and sort of that central lie that I think a lot of young women who are artists have that your your life is supposed to be kind of a mess for you to be an artist hmm. that makes sense yeah, yeah. So, so I've got that and then I have a novel Oh, tell me, 
Tell me about that. So the novel is, it's basically about a theater company. You know, I, I come from the theater, so I'm always thinking about theater. And it's about these two Dutch friends who form a theater company in the booming 90s in Seattle. And it all comes crashing down in the recession in 2008 and 2009. And so it's sort of about all these characters in the theater company and what happens after their theater company sort of implodes. And it spans basically their entire lifetimes. Like we start when one of the characters is like five and just discovering a theater. And then it's going to end actually in probably like 2050, which is sort of crazy to be trying to think about the future like that because it's not what I've ever done. But but I've just been thinking about this sort of like ancient art form, which is theater and how it changes over time as these people's lives change. So yeah, anyway, I'm about like two thirds of the way through that one. I'm having a lot of fun with it. That's great. Do you have any advice to aspiring authors? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, I think the number one thing is, is you have to read and read and read. It's the biggest thing. I, I meet a lot of aspiring authors who don't read. And, and oftentimes the attitude is that they don't have time to read. And well, I just don't know how one writes without reading. I always think of reading as sort of like the gasoline in the car, you know, and so you need the energy that you get from reading in order to write. So that's the biggest one is the more you read, the better your, your writing will be. And the more you'll write too. I think it inspires writing. I also think since we've been talking so much about relationships, finding someone who thinks it's great that you want to write. Cause I've known a number of people, mostly women, honestly, who have given up on artistic aspirations because they're with someone who doesn't support it. So I think that's really important, maybe kind of overlooked when people talk about what helps you write. It really does help to have a home life that supports it. Do you have that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And and really what that means is someone who will leave you alone. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I want to marry someone who doesn't want to spend any time with me. No, it sounds so terrible. Like someone who you like to spend time with, obviously, but if you're going to close your door for like a couple hours and write, they're going to respect that. Yeah. And they're not going to feel like you're abandoning them. Yeah. Because there's just no way to write without some solitude. You need it. And so I think that's probably the other thing is to cultivate a good relationship with solitude because that's where you're going to be. <laughs> <laughs> you said... I, you know, I think a lot about people not having time to read since I made that the title of this podcast. And I know. Pe- people are always talking to me about that. You know, I have four kids and I was having trouble fitting it in. And I always do because I love it. And it's sort of like anything you love, you find time to do, right? It's everything is a trade-off essentially. But how do you, like when- Do you when, read before bed or? When do I read? Yeah. Well, now I read all the time because I'm like doing this podcast. I used to mostly yeah, read. Yeah, that's before. great. That was a great way to make yourself read more. Right? I know. Thank you for yeah. uh, calling me out on my sort of. <laughs> <laughs> on the secret motivation. My motivation to read more. <laughs> and now I've looped in like hundreds of authors to make me stay on track. <laughs> So awesome. No, I used to just read before bed and a lot of times I would sort of fall asleep and like always on vacation and I read quickly. I, I don't know about you, but I could read like, I don't know, five books in a week on vacation and that would sustain me for the next couple months until my kid's next vacation. Although mm. although now that I'm thinking about it, I didn't actually read a lot on my vacations with kids because that's not even really like a vacation. But <laughs> Right, because you're playing with your kids, right? Yeah. It's even more time with kids than on vacation. Yeah. 
But now I read like all day. I bring books around with me everywhere. And I feel like all those dead times when you could be on your phone, if you read, the pages really add up. So that's the biggest thing, right? It's the phones. The phones are what is keeping people from reading. Like there's that thing on the iPhone where you can see how much screen time you spent on your phone. Yeah. And I took Facebook off my phone when I saw what that number was. I can't remember what it was, but it was appalling. You know, it was probably it was probably well over an hour at least that I was on my phone every day. And for some people, that's probably not even that much. But if you think about like, well, I could spend an hour on Facebook or I could read a lot. I mean, I can read a lot in an hour. That makes a big difference. But I think, I think it's really challenging to become a writer today, especially if you're younger and you've grown up with this technology, I would think, because mm-hmm. I grew up without it. You know, I didn't get an email address while I was 22 or 21. Mm-hmm. Me too. Right? Yeah. So I, I feel like we're the so, same age, but. <laughs> probably, yeah. 43. Yeah. Because like every everything you were saying about like things going on in the world in your book at a certain age, I was like, oh, me too. <laughs> same for you. Yeah. yeah same thing. Yeah, we're like this weird sort of cusp generation, right? Where we like came of age without this stuff, but like adopted it in our 20s. Totally. When do you like to read? Oh, all the time. I mean, I just always have, kind of like you, it's like if you're waiting for a bus or you're, you know, sitting outside a doctor's appointment. But then I also read often in the morning. Like if I have a a writing day, I also teach. So if, if it's a day when I'm writing, I often read first thing in the morning. That really helps me sort of get into the right frame of mind to write. I read every night before bed without question and often for at least an hour because I'm kind of a night owl. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but definitely just throughout the day because it's all I want to do. I know. I love me it. Me too. <laughs> I'm like, is, so this pa- is this pathetic that all I want to do is like sit here and read about things that are not actually my own life? <laughs> like, no, it's bad. I know. I agree. But sometimes I'm like, what does this mean? <laughs> Some escapist. Yeah, well, I don't know. The alternative is like being on Facebook or something. Or I guess like interacting with people. But right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Who wants to do that? <laughs> right. Keep reading and writing. That's 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 my happy place, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, great. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And I hope I get to meet you in person at some point. And thank you. Thank you so much for all your time. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. Of course. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, the award-winning podcast. Today's episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books was sponsored by Pediatrician in Your Pocket by Dr. Jennifer Trachtenberg, dr-gen.com. Enter code PIP20, PIP20, for 20% off of these can't-miss modules that will make your parenting life so much easier. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. 